When I was 16, I took two different defensive driving classes. The first one was because if you took it, then you got this certificate and it would help get some cost off of your insurance premiums. The second one is because a few months later, I drove my car into someone else's car and a judge said that probably would be a good idea. So at the court mandated one, it was kind of a strange thing that took place because we went into this big room. I think dad had to go with me. And all I really remember from the court mandated defensive driving class was them showing us really brutal pictures of people whose heads were smashed by things in the back of their cars and then telling us how to get out of tickets, which I thought was kind of strange because all of us were there because we had tickets. The other one, I remember a little more information from. The first thing I remember from the insurance defensive driving class was a story about road rage that went really bad, where these people were in the midst of this back and forth on the road, and they pulled their car over, and it ended with an older gentleman shooting a younger gentleman with a crossbow, which is a unique story, and that sticks with you for a little while. But the other thing I remember was just the constant emphasis on not overcorrecting. So if you're driving your car and you get in a crisis situation where you run off the side of the road or maybe you're hydroplaning and your car is going to the right, that it's really important not to overcorrect and go to the left as hard as you can because that can create more trouble for you. That can be more of a problem for you than if you just ride it out. And so they stressed over and over again, never overcorrect. Now, if you've heard me preach a lot or even a little, you know that I tend to put a lot of emphasis on the communal nature of Christianity. I believe wholeheartedly that Scripture teaches us that Christianity is a community endeavor and that when we encounter salvation through Christ, that we are brought into this community, the church with a capital C, and we're called to share in that faith and that purpose and that ministry together. But it can be easy sometimes to overcorrect and talk about nothing but the community and sometimes neglect the personal nature of Christianity. Because the reality is, in a lot of areas, Christianity is about balance. It's about recognizing how our life works in community and also individually and personally and how we are individuals, but we are individuals who are one in Christ. That we all have individual stories and struggles that make us who we are, but then when we come together as the church, those individual struggles and those individual stories become one big story of all of us working out our faith and our relationship with Christ together. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in Psalm chapter 116. We're going to look at how this identity as being individual yet part of a community shapes our worship. In particular here, how it shapes our praise as we're looking at these Hallel or these praise psalms from 113 to 118 and how it shapes our mission as the church. And so we're going to look at Psalm chapter 116, which is very different from the rest of the Hallel psalms because while the rest of them seem very focused on all of the people praising the Lord, Psalm chapter 116 is very focused on personal pronouns, on an individual faith, And so this is an individual, personal psalm that's used for public praise. And so just as we have every week, instead of me just reading this passage alone, because these were designed for corporate worship, we're going to read these together. And so any words that are bold and underlined, you read along with me, and then I'll read the plain text alone. 
So this is Psalm 116, verse 1 through 19. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish, and then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord, and righteous our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds, and I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we thank you that just as you are both a big and transcendent God, you're also personal. That God, you call us to a faith that is big and corporate and communal, but God, a faith that is also intimately personal. So this morning, we thank you for the story of this psalmist who wrote this psalm for public consumption, for public worship that revealed a moment of private distress and private restoration so that we can all find ourselves in the midst of this psalm and offer the same praise. So God, show us how our stories matter in the bigger story, in the bigger life of the church. And through our private praise and our public worship, may you receive all of the honor and all of the glory and all the praise. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. It's wedding season, in case you didn't know. I know there's a lot of weddings going on around me. So I've already gotten to officiate one wedding. I'm simultaneously doing two premarital counseling sessions, three. Three, I'm about to add a third one. And so I've got a wedding coming up in a couple weeks. Then I'm going to be singing at a friend's wedding. I've got two weddings going later on this year. There are a lot of weddings happening. And one of the cool things about getting to do premarital counseling is you get to sit down with couples and ask them very simple questions like, why do you want to get married? What is it about this other person that you love? And I really do love getting to hear those stories as you hear people tell why they've fallen in love with this person, why they want to spend the rest of their lives with this one person, and they go through reasons, which is good. Because if they didn't have reasons, I would be very uncomfortable with that. But a lot of people don't. 
a lot of times if you ask somebody, and none of the weddings that I'm doing have this problem, but sometimes when you ask people the question, why do you love this person? Or what are the reasons that you love this person? Or why do you want to marry this person? You get this answer. Well, when you know, you know. That answer's garbage. That doesn't mean anything. That's not love. That might be infatuation. That might be adoration. But it's certainly not love. If you love someone, or even if you love something, there are reasons to why you have that love. Any kind of love that's genuine, and any kind of love that's real, has its source. And so I feel fairly confident, and I know with absolute certainty, that if you were to come to me and ask me why I love Stephanie, and why we're going to spend the rest of our lives together, I can give you a list. And I, I hope that she can do the same. Mine might be longer because I'm a little harder to love, but she can probably give you some reasons why she loves me. And you might want to know those because you might be thinking, why, Stephanie? Why? In fact, do you love Chris? But there are, there are reasons there. Our love has a foundation. When we love someone, we know why. And that's why I love how Psalm chapter 116 begins. Because the psalmist says, I love the Lord because... I don't just love the Lord because I should or because that's what my parents have taught me or because that's what's supposed to happen. He says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy and he's inclined his ear to me. I think we need to ask ourselves the question because, again, we live in, a, in an area where this would be really easy to do. How often are we guilty of loving God because we should and not because we do. How often, if somebody asks us the question on our most honest moments, why do you love God? Why do you go to church? Why do you call yourself a Christian? How many times would we give some kind of spiritual version of, eh, when you know, you know. The psalmist not only knows that he loves God, but he knows why he loves God. There's a source, there's reasons for why the psalmist is offering up his worship and his praise and his adoration. The psalmist says, I love the Lord because he heard my voice, my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. And here again, we see this theme that we've looked at, not just in the book of Psalms, but even before in the book of Jonah, that God is so big and so unfathomably large, but yet he's still so intimate and kind and compassionate that he meets us where we are and he listens to us individually. And this psalmist resonates with that intimacy because he says, I love the Lord because he heard me. That in my moments of distress, all of these incredibly detailed personal pronouns, the psalmist celebrates his love for God because of what God had done for him personally. But then what's so amazing about that is that it doesn't stay personal. Even though this psalm is filled with personal pronouns, remember the purpose of these. Remember the reason why these psalms exist and why they're in Scripture. This isn't just devotional material, but these psalms, especially Psalm 113 to 118, was designed to be used in corporate worship. And so when Jesus and the disciples sat down at that Last Supper meal, like we talked about at chapter 113, as they were singing through all of these psalms, they would have sang this psalm. 
they would have sang this psalmist's story. And they would have used the same personal pronouns, but it wouldn't be for this psalmist. It would be for each and every one of them. This psalm is designed, even though it's very personable, to be used in public worship. And something amazing happens. We see this feeding of of praise in this passage of Scripture. Because the psalmist uses this as a personal outpouring of his love and affection for God. But that personal and private worship, now that it's put on display for all of God's people to use, it fuels corporate worship. And so when we sang the song that Lydia was singing earlier that was basically this psalm put into song form, and then we read this psalm together, this psalmist's story is now fuel for our corporate worship. And as we read through and sing through this psalm, we're reminded of all the times that God has saved us and that God has met us at our darkest and that God has heard our voice. And we're reminded of all the reasons why we love God. And so this personal psalm fuels our public worship. And then hopefully what will happen is that as we come together today and we sing these psalms and we read these psalms and we hear about this psalm, that it would fuel now our private worship. And we would go home remembering what God has done for us and how amazing it is that God is intimate and personal with each and every one of us. And so this corporate worship will fuel our private worship. And then again, guess what happens? As we grow deeper in our walk with Christ in our private worship, then we get to bring that to the table again next Sunday and feel corporate worship. And it's this ongoing cycle of how God uses his intimate and personal nature to push on the corporate unity of the church. Psalmist says, I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. This ongoing pattern of private and public to help us praise God now and forevermore. That that mechanism that's put in motion that I just talked about helps to be able to fuel this idea of calling on him as long as I live. Or like we saw in 113 and 115, the call to praise God now and forevermore is easier because we have this rhythm of private and public worship. Then the psalmist gets even more personal. In verse 3 it says, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me, and I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray Deliver my soul. This is a very deeply personal experience that the psalmist is writing about. This is the kind of confession. This is the kind of prayer to God that, at least for me, I maybe can't speak for you, but for me, these are the kind of prayers that I like to keep for myself. When you're in these moments where you feel like you're on the brink of death, this is the same kind of psalm that Jonah prayed in the belly of the fish, saying, I am at death's door. I am at the most desperate place that I could ever possibly be. The psalmist felt like they were close to losing everything they had, and it was in that moment of brokenness, in that moment of weakness, that they cried out to God. And again, for me, those cries come when nobody else is around. But the psalmist takes this incredibly private experience and offers them up to be used in public worship. And that makes me ask a question of myself. And maybe we all need to ask this together. But how vulnerable are we willing to be in corporate worship? 
I think for all of history, probably, people have had an issue with vulnerability. But I think we have a particular deficit when it comes to vulnerability in the world that we live in and in the culture that we live in. We live in a very divided and combative culture. And so there's a fear that if we put too much out there about ourselves, that people might find something about us that they don't like or that divides us. And so maybe we won't be able to have the same relationships. But we also have this really unique thing in social media where we can put out false vulnerability into the world. Because that's mostly what social media is. And maybe you don't spend a lot of time on it, but you're at least familiar with it. Social media is a really good opportunity to put your best face forward. And even to a certain degree, a level of things that seem like vulnerability, but really isn't. And so we're good at keeping people distant. Social media is just a modern way of answering the question, how are you doing with I'm good, right? How many times have you seen someone in a store? How many times have you come across someone that you haven't seen in a while or even just a friend that you're fairly close with and they say, hey, how are you today? And you say, I'm good. But inside you're thinking, I am in anguish and distress, but I just can't put all that on you. I just can't let you have that. I just don't want to reveal that. I don't want to show you my weakness or I don't want you to have to bear my burden. But we have to realize that God works in incredible ways in our private lives, in ways that sometimes no one else would even recognize. But usually those gifts aren't designed to be just for us. They're meant to be shared. A lot of times we take these moments of weakness and these moments of pain and these moments of desperation and we see God provide for us in really incredible ways and then we store those things up in our hearts like little mementos to keep and to hold on to for ourselves. But the reality is that God works those things in our lives so that we can bring them to the table of corporate worship so that we can share them with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see that example here in the book of Psalms as this psalmist is at the, the most desperate point of their lives and yet pours that out not just for themselves, not just for worship to God, but for the people to share in that. We need to learn to bring our private faith into public praise. We have a commandment in Scripture as the body of Christ to laugh when others laugh, and to weep when others weep. But how can I laugh with you if I don't know what makes you laugh and brings you joy? How can I weep with you if, you don't, if I don't know what makes you weep? How can you laugh and weep with me if I don't let you know the things that are going on that bring me joy or that bring me sorrow? How can we answer that commandment if we withhold the vulnerability that we're called to have with and for each other? And so in the psalmist example here, we have the calling to love God privately, but then to make that love public to know why we love God and to share that truth with everyone around us, to love Him for who He is and also for what He's done and to bring those truths and those experiences into the sanctuary week after week to fuel the fire of corporate worship and also to be able to share our burdens with others and to receive the burdens of others so that we can worship God not only in spirit and truth but also in complete honesty with one another. The psalmist continues on talking about the nature and the power of God in verses 5 through 7. 
It says, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Growing up, I remember in social studies classes and history classes, seeing pictures of the Sears Tower in Chicago. For whatever reason, in several of my classes, we talked about the biggest buildings in the country, and at the time, that was either the second or the third tallest building in the country. And when you hear that, and when you see the numbers, and when you see pictures in your textbook of the Sears Tower next to something else, you recognize how big that really is. But it wasn't until my freshman year of college that I went to Chicago, and I stood at the base of the Sears Tower, and I looked up and could barely see where it started to break at the top of the building, that I realized exactly how big the Sears Tower was. Having that personal, direct, intimate connection changed the way that I understood how tall it was whenever I realized that not only could I not really see the top, but the building was so tall and so large that it changed the wind patterns around me. The ground felt different around it because I got a little dizzy when I looked up too high. Everything changed when I was standing in front of this building that my whole life I knew was a really big building. But now all of a sudden I was very aware of how big and incredible it was. We've got an ever-growing list of places that we want to hike and places that we want to go. And on our Georgia list, one of those places that we wanted to get to is Cloudland Canyon. And if you've ever been, it's a very beautiful place. And through internet research and pictures in books and things on social media, I'd seen some really unbelievable pictures of Cloudland Canyon. It was beautiful. It was green. It was lush. There were waterfalls. And there was one picture in particular that a lot of people would post from this one point where you were at the top of the canyon and you could see over the entire thing. And even from pictures, it looked amazing. But last year, we finally got to go, and we were standing at that exact point where I'd seen so many pictures before, and the pictures could certainly not do it justice, because all of a sudden, I could see the scope of this canyon and could see the trees that were alive, and some even, because we went in the fall, even with the trees being dead, it seemed so vibrant and so alive, and you could smell the air and feel the breeze coming off the canyon, and all of a sudden, this thing that I was somewhat familiar with because of pictures, now I was intimately acquainted with because I was standing there in the midst of it. And when we look at Psalm chapter 116, verse 5 and 6, we realize that God is easy to admire from a distance. Good theology is obtainable with absolutely no connection. It is incredibly possible to have a distant ideological belief in God. Someone could sit beside you and say, listen, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful and preserves the simple. And we can hear that and that sounds really good. And we can take hold of that and say, yeah, that's the kind of God that I want to believe in. And I can believe that a God like that exists somewhere because of this picture that's presented. And I can believe that without really any personal connection with God at all. And this could have absolutely happened in the life of ancient Israel because it was a hereditary faith. You were born into this. Following after God, following after Yahweh was not just something that you did as a religion, but it was their, it was their race, it was their ethnicity, it was their family. They were very proud of the fact that they could trace not only their bloodline back to Abraham, but they could trace this faith back to Abraham. 
And so it would be easy to hear growing up in this ancient Israelite world that this is the God that we serve and that we worship. They would hear Deuteronomy 6.4, the hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you should worship Him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they would hear the stories about what God had done for their ancestors. And they would hear phrases like this, that God is gracious and righteous, that our God is merciful and preserves the simple. And because that's the story that they'd heard their entire lives, it would be very easy to believe that with absolutely no personal connection with God at all. Because it's a really good picture of who God is. And that's a really dangerous thing that could happen to us as well. Because whether it seems like things are changing or not, the reality is that most of the people in our country would claim to believe in this kind of God. Most of the people in our country would claim to, at least in some way, shape, form, or fashion, be Christians. And especially growing up in the South for me, and now all of us living in the South, living in the southeastern part of our country, the buckle of the Bible Belt, it's still part of our story. It's part of our language. It's part of of what we hear growing up. And even if you've never set foot in a church, it's likely that you've heard about God. That maybe you know something about Jesus and you could ask someone living around here that do you believe in God and they could probably say yes. And they might even say that they love God and they worship God, but they have no real personal connection with God because we can fall into that trap of having a cultural faith. Of seeing a picture of God and being able to admire that from a distance. And that's a God that we can believe in even if we don't feel connected. But faith, sincere faith, is something much deeper. Because the psalmist continues after this beautiful picture of who God is. It says, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. And then he says, when I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Again, we see this twofold nature of praising God. Because the psalmist says, here's a picture of who God is, and here's a picture of how God acts and what God does. And for that alone, he's worthy to be praised and worshipped. And we worship him completely independently of who he is but our circumstances. But then also the psalmist follows that up by saying, not only is this who God is from a distance, but this is who God is for me. This is who God is in my life and in my circumstances. He says, not only is God gracious to the simple, but the reality is I am one of the simple that God is gracious to. I am one of the weak and the broken that needs God's mercy and God's grace. And the same God who is merciful to the simple at a distance, to the other people who need his grace and his mercy, God is also merciful and gracious and kind to me. And the combination of these truths resulted in something transformative for the psalmist. Verse 7, he says, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. This recognition that not only is God gracious and righteous and merciful and preserving the simple, but that he met the psalmist in his time of need. He says, when I was brought low, he saved me. That truth and that praise that he was offering up to God was able to somehow change the way that the psalmist recognized his situation. 
Because remember, verse 3 and 4 paint a very desperate and distressed and anguished picture of what the psalmist was dealing with. He was brought low. He was at the death's doorstep. He was encompassed by all of the things that were dragging him down into darkness. But then he remembered that God preserves the simple. And then when he was brought low, that God saved him. And everything about how he perceived the situation changed because of the way that he worships. And now this one person's personal praise again transforms our public worship. One of the things that's so amazing about church liturgy or basically just the way that we worship, the things that make up our church service, is we come together and week after week we confess some of the same things. Our confession of sin is the same every single week. We sing songs multiple times. So if you come here this week, we might sing a song that in maybe a month or two, we might sing that song again. Some of these songs are fairly new. Some of these songs people have been singing for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so this liturgy or this worship puts us into a story that we can all fit in. Because we're reminded that even though some of these songs and some of these passages of Scripture and some of these confessions and some of these prayers were written out of an individual's experience with God, we are welcomed into those stories as we worship. And so while this psalmist had a particular thing happening in their life that brought them down to a place of agony and distress and God rescued them out of them, even though we're not going through that exact same situation, when we read this in worship, when we sing this song in worship, we are all reminded of the times when we were brought low. We're all reminded of the times when we were in distress and in agony. And because of that, we're reminded that God preserves the simple. And that just like this psalmist was one of those simple that God preserves, we are also the simple that God preserves. And so even even though this is somebody else's word and somebody else's story, we're invited into this story to worship the God who saved us when we were brought low who lifted us up when we were in need, when we felt the snares of death encompassing us and the pain of Sheol laying hold of us. And to whatever degree it is, all of us have felt something that feels that way at some point in our lives. And we've had those moments where God reaches down to where we were and lifts us up and shows us His grace and mercy. And so we can all sing the same psalm because this is all of our stories. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, simple though I was, the Lord did not pass me by. Though reduced in circumstances, slandered in character, depressed in spirit, and sick in my body, the Lord helped me. There are many ways in which the child of God may be brought low. But the help of God is as various as the need of His people. He supplies our necessities when impoverished restores our character when maligned, raises up friends when we're deserted, comforts us when desponding, and heals our diseases when we're sick. There are thousands in the church of God at this time who can each one, each one of them, say for himself, I was brought low and He helped me. Whenever this can be said, it should be said to the praise of the glory of His grace and for the comforting of others who may pass through the like ordeal. Spurgeon says when this passage is read, that there are thousands of us who resonate with that passage. 
They can say, when I was brought low, the Lord saved me. And that as we do, we declare that truth not only to ourselves, but to all of those gathered around us. And he says that every time that we read through this psalm, it should be said to praise because we remember the fact that God preserves the simple and we are the simple. And so we have a responsibility in our worship. That when it comes to praising God, that we have to take inventory and pay attention. To know God from afar for who He is, but also at the same time to recognize His close and intimate work in our lives and then turn all of those things around as reasons to praise. To put our story on display and welcome others into it and to be a part of this big story of the God who recognizes us at our weakness and saves us by His grace. Verse 10, the psalmist said, or excuse me, from verse 8. The psalmist says, for you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 10 says, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. This is such an amazing passage of scripture. Because the psalmist still seems very much to be in a very desperate situation. It doesn't look as though those pangs of Sheol have completely passed away. Because he says, I believe, and even when I recognized, even when I spoke that I am greatly afflicted, his response to that is that all mankind are liars. All the things that seem to be overwhelming me and bringing me down have no power or dominion over me because I know that even in the depths of my despair that God loves me and that God is going to lift me up and that God is going to bring me to the place where I need to be. And even if I sit in my distress for a very long time, I have a God who even though he is so big holds the world in the palm of his hands also kneels with me in the dirt of my despair and brings me comfort and grace and peace. And so you can say whatever you want about the things that it should be bringing me down, but I know that it's all false because even in the midst of my affliction, my God is with me and He loves me and He cares for me. And what this passage does is it takes a psalm that seems very emotional, right? This is a good emotional psalm that reminds us that even in our weakness that God loves us and that brings some peace to us. And the psalmist says, be at rest, my soul. But this passage also injects some truth into the midst of our worship. And our circumstances can be very good liars because they can remind us or at least cause us to think that God is not with us or that God is not moving through us or that because we are sick or because we're afflicted or because we're distressed that God is not present. But this psalm reminds us that even though our minds and our hearts may even say, I'm greatly afflicted, we know the truth of the matter is that God loves and preserves the simple and the weak and the broken and that He is gracious and righteous and loves us and that He lifts us up when we're brought low. And so if you want to offer God the kind of unending praise that we're called to do in these psalms, this is how we do it. If we want to worship God as Jesus calls us to with spirit and with truth, this is how we do it. 
by seeing how God works in our lives in private and putting that on display in public so that our brokenness and our weakness can be an encouragement to someone else or that maybe when we hear the brokenness and the weakness of someone else, we can take courage and take hope and be reminded not only of the joy that we have and the peace that we have knowing that Christ is there somewhere, that God is working there somewhere, but we can have the truth that God is with us even in our brokenness and even in our hardships. And then verse 12 comes and the psalmist asks a very important question. He says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits for me? A lot of times we follow up a period of worship. So whether that's coming to church on Sunday and singing songs and hearing a sermon or spending time reading our passage of Scripture, maybe if you read your Bible in the morning or at night, spending time in God's Word, maybe spending time in prayer or at a Bible study or, or some type of thing. We have these moments of, of worship where we put worship practices into play. And a lot of times the question that we ask at the end of these times is, what am I getting out of this? What is this passage going to say to me? When I come to church on Sunday, I hope they're going to be singing the songs that I like because I really need a good pick-me-up. What am I going to learn out of the sermon? I hope Chris is preaching something good or out of a passage that relates to me because I really just need something in my life. Even when I'm preparing a sermon, there's that temptation to say, what am I getting out of this passage of Scripture? What's in it for me? But the psalmist has a very different question. Because the psalmist already knew what he got out of this. The psalmist already knew before he came to offer up praise and worship to God that God had already done far more for him than he could ever ask for or imagine or desire. And so his question is very different. The psalmist's question is, I have already received so much from God. And so what am I going to do in response? What am I going to give back to God? What shall I render to the Lord? I love this phrasing, for all his benefits for me. God has already given me so much, and so how am I going to, through my worship and through my life, give something, anything, any little morsel of something back to God? And then he answers the question. He says, I will lift up the cup of salvation. And will call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. The psalmist says, I'm going to go out and I'm going to live my faith out loud. I'm going to show the world around me the cup of salvation that God has given me. And I'm going to call on his name in the presence of all the people. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. And all the people are going to see that. And they're going to see how amazing my God is. It says in verse 17 that I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst, O Jerusalem. The psalmist says, wherever I go, whatever I do, because God has been so gracious and so kind and so merciful to me. Because God has given me so many benefits and blessings that I could never possibly count them, I'm going to return all of that into praise. And everywhere I go and everything I do, 
whether it's in the sanctuary, whether it's in the courts of his people or all throughout Jerusalem, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to pay what I've vowed to him and I'm going to celebrate and praise his name so that anyone who encounters me or meets me will know how good my God not only is from a distance, but how good my God has been to me. You see, we don't come to worship to pay it forward. We don't come to worship to buy God's favor. We offer our praise in response to everything that he has already done. And I wonder if we were all very diligent to have that mentality. I wonder how things would begin to change. If every time we came together for worship or every time we went out into the world to do our jobs, to do what we're called to do, to give glory to God and everything that we do, whether we're eating or drinking, if that was on the forefront of our mind, if the question that we ask constantly was, what can I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I wonder how much things would begin to change. Psalm 12 through 19 could be our benediction every single Sunday. After we come together and we receive God's grace through communion, when we take communion once a month, through the preaching of God's word, through the prayers and all the things that we receive as we come to worship Sunday after Sunday, this passage could be our benediction every single week. Saying now that we've received all of this goodness from God, how are we going to go out and rend to God what belongs to Him? How are we going to go back and put God's glory on display? This could be the opening and the beginning of every single day. We could wake up every morning and the first thought be, what am I going to give to God because of all the benefits He's given to me already? The psalmist takes us on this incredible journey from belief to faith to praise to service. And it all comes from the recognition that we serve a God who is merciful to us in our time of need and has already done for us far more than we could ever do in return or even more than we could ever ask. And all of that is worship. And what's so amazing about that And what's so striking about this pattern that happens when we worship is as we saw over the last couple of weeks, it's impossible for us to come and to worship God and not receive something in return. It's impossible to come even with the most selfless intentions of saying, I am coming to church today or I am waking up this morning and everything I do is going to be for the glory of God and I don't expect to receive anything at all. I don't need anything from God at all today because he's already done so much for me. And even having that mentality and that heart condition, and even if it's as pure as the driven snow, if we come to God and we worship him in that way, it is impossible to not receive something from God because the more that we know who he is, the more we recognize how he works in our lives, the more our eyes are open to see how God moves and how God is gracious and righteous and merciful. And we see all of those ways that God continues to pour out blessings on us because we're his children and we love him and so the more we come to worship God selflessly the more we realize how much God is still doing for us and then guess what 
the more reasons we have to worship God because we've received more benefits from God than we can ever offer back. And so again, it's this constant movement of getting in the rhythm of praise and worship to God where we see God for who he is, where we recognize God for what he's done. We worship him because of that. And the more we worship him, the more we praise him, the more we see of who he is and what he's done and the more we worship him. And that's how we develop this pattern of unending praise to the God who deserves every single bit of it. So our calling is simple. To worship. To offer up our Hallel. To offer up our praise to God. To worship God for who He is and for all He's done. To give Him our praise because He loves us and that He is worthy of our love and we have reasons to love Him. To offer up our praise and worship because even in the midst of our worst and darkest moments that God is there and he loves us and he cares for us and he raises us up. Or even in the times before he raises us up, he is there with us in the midst of our despair. And then we're called to take that worship, to take that private praise and to turn them public. To take everything that we have received from God and then turn and give that away to our brothers and our sisters in Christ and to the world around us. So I've got some homework for you to help. If you take notes during the sermon, you can do this in your notebook. If not, get you a journal, get you a notebook, get you a piece of paper at some point during this week. And what I want us to do is to write out the reasons that we love God. To just start a list of all the reasons why we explicitly and distinctly love God. Maybe write down some of the distresses that God has delivered you from. Maybe recently or maybe things that happened a long time ago that sometimes still feel fresh and new. Give your answers to verse 12. So these are the reasons I love God. Here are the things that God has delivered me from. And now here's what I'm going to do in response. And then summarize that by writing out ways that you can bring all of that stuff to the table of corporate worship. How am I going to bring the reasons I love God? How am I going to bring the distresses that God has delivered me from? How am I going to bring my acts of service and my vows of praise to God? How am I going to take all of those things and use them in the life of the church for the glory of God and for the good of my brothers and sisters in Christ and my neighbors all around? And if you need a good place to start, here's one. That all of us, every single one of us, were born brought low. All of us were born into to the pollution and the sickness of sin. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we were dead in our sins and trespasses. And spiritually, verse 3 was very true. For each and every one of us, because of our sin, death encompassed us and the pangs of Sheol held on to us. And we were in distress and we were in anguish. And there was nothing that we could do about it but God being rich in mercy, with a great love that He loved us, made us alive in Christ. And so if you're here, and maybe that page would be blank because you've never trusted in Christ for salvation before, that's the message that we call the good news. That every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and there was nothing that we could do about it, but God loved the world so much that He gave Christ. 
And through Christ's death offered us forgiveness for sins. And through his resurrection offered us the promise of new life and restoration and eternity with God. And the opportunity to know God intimately through the power of his son. And so if you're at a point where you know that you need to be able to write that on your list this week, but you've never put your faith in Christ before and you've never gone through baptism before, then I would encourage you. We're going to have a moment in just a second when Lydia's going to come and play quietly and you can either come and talk with me in the front. Pastor Adam is in the second row. Pastor David is in the very back. You can come and talk with one of us about what it means to trust in Christ for salvation and to go through baptism. If you're here and you know the story and the story is true for you, that you know that you were at one point dead in your sins and trespasses and there was nothing you could do about it, but God loved you so much that through Christ made you alive and lifted you up and raised you up to be one of his sons and his daughters, then there's a really good place for your list to start. And at any time we go through our highs and lows to remember that moment when God scooped us up out of our despair and out of our spiritual brokenness and death and breathed new life into us. And so begin there and write out all of these things. And as you do, as you see physically coming out on paper all the reasons why you love God, all the things that God has delivered you from, all of the things that you're going to do in response to God, as you see all of this manifest on paper, praise the Lord for all that he's done 